This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, January 23, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Today we're talking with Jason Sheftel, a political and economic writer and podcaster who has written extensively on China. His travels have included studying in Beijing as well as traveling throughout China and getting familiar with its culture, its people, its economics, and its politics. His upcoming book is called China Unraveled. It chronicles the story of China's cycle of tyranny and chaos as it poses the question, what does the next phase in China's history mean for the United States as well as the rest of the world? We know that China has become a world superpower, both militarily and economically, and we also know that we Americans have become increasingly reliant on China for a large portion of the stuff that we buy every day. Everything from semiconductors to jeans to light bulbs, everything is manufactured there. And for the record, no, MAGA hats are not manufactured in China, although it does make a pretty amusing joke. So Jason, thank you for joining us on the program today. Thanks, Dan. Really glad to be here. So I'm sure my brief introduction probably was not doing you justice right there. It wasn't sufficient. So could you spend a minute or two just sort of reviewing what your experience is with China, as well as your personal motivation for becoming expert enough to write a comprehensive book about it? Sure. So my personal motivation goes back around 20 years. I've always been sort of fascinated by China. And I grew up around actually a Chinese person who was coming in and out of my, my parents' house, childhood home growing up. And then around 2001, when the United States got pulled into the Middle East, I remember being drawn to thinking about what was going on in China. How was a country that was large, complex, old, ancient, just uh, fascinating and modernizing at a rapid pace? How is this going to play out in the world? I was watching our own government just sort of gallivant around the Middle East with all sorts of misguided misadventures. And I wondered, well, are we going to do the same thing with China? Is this exactly, is this going to be the next phase, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later. And so I got, yeah, I was, I was just always interested in, I was always, been, always been interested in economics and development and politics. My grandfather was actually an economist, a developmental and agricultural economist who went to China and India back in the day. And he was actually trying to help these countries develop. So really pulled pretty far back from my personal history. And then I went to college. I learned Chinese. I got a scholarship to study in China. I was staying in Beijing. I went all around the country and, and there we go. And then the the work I've been doing afterwards is very related to how uh, sort of the spatial organization of countries, of cities, of businesses, and it's about how does a country or a region or a city state or whatever it happens to be, how does it grow out of the region that it's a part of? How do you get a city like St. Louis, Missouri, precisely where it is? And how does it get the role that it has uh, historically in the global, in the US economy, in the global economy? And then how might that fade? Why might that fade? And this was sort of the developmental perspective I took when I was looking at things. And China's just been the main center of my, my interest. And a few years ago, I decided, all right, it's time to put all this together and do a book and release parts of this information in podcasts and interviews. And so that's what I'm doing. Okay. So let's take a step back from China itself, or, or I should not step back, but let's, let's take the 30,000 foot view, I should say. And 
in the materials that you've written that I've read so far, I haven't read all of your materials, and and uh, but there you talk a lot about the cycles of chaos and tyranny in China, and that's its history. Could you go into its history a little bit and shed some light on it from a modern perspective? Like, are they in a are they in a, a cycle of tyranny at this point, or are they going to go to chaos, or, or what's what's your take on that? Sure. So, uh, order and chaos is probably less fretted with language tyranny is sort of what China trends to in periods of order. It, was, it is what China trends to in periods of order. But order and chaos is a great way to think about it. It's also how the Chinese have thought about it historically going back to probably the first millennium BC. And so just to give the broad yeah, 30,000 feet view here, China is roughly speaking a 3,500 year old uh, culture, uh, group, cultural group. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party will say 5,000 years, but that's entirely a propaganda term. It is doing certain things to do limit the perception of variability and basically different lines of strains of thought and culture and language and politics and basically group identity in China is trying to kind of smother all that away. But this 3,500 year group, it really came together in the first millennium BC. This was the classic Zhou, Qin and Han dynasty periods. And from there, it's from the moment that these groups, these original proto-Chinese and Chinese groups are coming together, they've really struggled to unify the region of China that they're in, right? So this is what I was saying about the specific land, the specific region. There are few places on earth that are as difficult to bring into one central unified government than China. And the result of that is that basically for the first 500 years, you know, 1000 AD, I mean, 1000 BC to 500 BC, China was basically embroiled in relentless, brutal, endless conflict. Yeah, another 250 years to it as well. This was, and in general, Northern China is probably the bloodiest battlefield on the face of the earth because there's a level of political violence and military conflict that is just unseen in most other parts of the world. And this has really contributed to the preoccupations and the identity and the nature of the Chinese political state that formed once all of that was occasionally over, over, overcome. And so what China is typically doing is trying to is trying to control or overcome these deep internal divisions, which not only did they early on, that part of China was just a piece of modern China, right? That mm -hmm. wasn't even the whole thing. And you add in all the other pieces of China and it actually becomes even more of a difficult mess to deal with, right? So just the beginning was like, all right, we have like over 500 years of near continuous warfare. Then you try and add in all the other pieces and it doesn't get any better. And so that is the problem. And so what it ends up doing on a political sense is it creates small brief periods where one, typically a warlord, is able to conquer everything. And it typically lasts maybe 150 years, basically two generations. So you get one great founder, and then you often get like a great grandson, no, not a, a very successful grandson who's right. able to sort of rejuvenate it for a little bit, and then it falls, falls apart. Falls apart. Yeah. And so what you see is actually, if you were to go look at Chinese history, you'll be like, wow, like all these dynasties, one after the other, so amazing. It's like a phoenix that just <laughs> reappears after every every time it's uh, sort of crushed, right? Not quite. Most of that is just uh, unrelenting warlordism and chaos. It's just it's just what you see actually if you're if you're looking at what it looked like actually on the ground. Most of these dynasties they didn't have their golden ages were at best 150 years, and at worst, I mean, they had very little at all. So that's what happens. And you get these cycles. And in a modern context, what you see is another, these cycles are actually, they're sped up the same way that industrialization, modernization, electrification, urbanization, all these isations, uh, they've really sped up life. 
they've sped up the rate of technological change. They've sped up technological improvements, military conflicts, all this stuff. It's basically the speed uh, of the velocity, really, of, of human life. It's also accelerating these Chinese cycles. Mm. So since 1949, uh, basically around 1978, 1979, China began an open to open itself up to the world. And this is a typical thing that Chinese states that are relatively novel and weak will try and do to bring in new energy, new ideas, new sure. everything. The problem is you do this for too long, you destabilize the Chinese state, mm -hmm. inevitably, always. And so that's kind of what we had now. So we had about 40-ish years of, all right, open things up. You know, we're going to loosen the screws a little bit, let some stuff in, let, it, let the water in, all right. right, all that. And then it starts to reach a point where the Chinese state, the the political state starts to get very scared about what it sees mm -hmm. throughout the country, right? It starts to see economic and social divisions rising mm -hmm. in every part of the country. It starts to see antagonisms with its many, many neighbors and with everyone, basically. Mm -hmm. And the modern world where you have supply chains, global supply chains, you have these very complex dependencies all across the world. They are extremely difficult for a country like China to deal with. So if you go into its history, China is very content to just block off the rest of the world, right? It sure. already has enough problems within China. So now we live in a world where you can't do that. And modern China cannot actually function without the rest of the world. It need, the only way it was able to develop was all the external markets, all the every, everything, yeah. right? And we could yeah. get into that, but it's really, really tough right now. So Xi Jinping was just at the UN or he was at a, a big uh, Davos summit or the W, mm -hmm. whichever one of those grand events. And he's there saying globalization cannot be stopped. <laughs> it, is, it is inevitable. And he's not saying that because that's true. He's saying that because China needs that to be true. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the many things we'll see, actually, if you when you look at what's actually going on, a lot of Chinese diplomatic speak, which is becoming increasingly impossible to interpret, right? It's becoming like sort of quite deranged towards sort of like towards the end of the Soviet Union. But that's <laughs> that's where we are. Well, so to that end, then, I mean, you kind of brought us up to modern day here. Um, do you worry sometimes that the U.S. may have perhaps overextended itself because now my, China has become sort of a manufacturing capital of the world and the United States becomes increasingly reliant upon manufacturing. And we've, we've seen with this, with this uh, recent uh, supply economic uh, issue that, uh, you know, you, you hold up a few ships coming from, uh, from China across the Pacific to the U S and you get a lot of, um, you get a lot of problems with supply side issues because the U S is, I would think perhaps, I don't know what your opinion is, that we have overextended ourselves on manufacturing in China. And and the second part of the question then is, what if the U.S. starts pulling the manufacturing jobs back? I mean, will this will this destabilize China? Will it, will it destabilize the world? Yeah, so the United States, after 1945, developed a large global system to try and stabilize many parts of the world that are typically prone to violent, destructive conflict, right? Like I mentioned, China, East, East Asia is a good one to keep in mind, obviously. And we always have to remember that Japan had just colonized and brutally colonized and occupied China for decades before. Right. Yet now they they sit there, Japan dangling off the coast of China, and there's not been a problem for over 75 years, right. not even a war. That's, again, entirely a result of the United States. And there's similar things in Europe and Eastern Europe. We have problems now with Russia and Germany going through another rodeo of I mean, basically we're seeing these same patterns start to repeat themselves. And what right. the United States did with its global system was to provide, it, it tried to, there's obviously many terrible parts to what it did, but in general, it was trying to spread enough of the prosperity around to US global allies to keep them in line against the Soviet Union, and also to allow them to develop and to in doing so 
help defend themselves. <laughs> right. So it wouldn't have to be the US. They could be there on the front lines and we wouldn't have to do the whole job ourselves. What's happening now is that this entire system is actually breaking down. Mm -hmm. That's why you're seeing Ukraine. That's why you're seeing Russia. That's why you're seeing all sorts of things around the world sure. that don't look pleasant. And they're actually incredibly frightening. And COVID accelerated this trend, uh, a more general trend that the United States had been experiencing both in its business industrial base and also in the population at large to end some of this globalized production, right? right? What happened is that the United States basically, the US Navy and the global transportation systems, and the global information systems we have allowed the world to split into basically production nodes and consumption nodes, if that makes sense. So you mm -hmm. have small nodes, like we have places like Germany that produce things and they typically sell all that stuff to the major consumption nodes in the world, which is the United States is the main, it's bigger than the next six or seven combined. Right. That's the way the world worked. And so Japan developed because it built things and it sold them to the United States. China developed, built things, sold them to the United States, primarily other countries as well. But that is the system that we developed. And part of what happened with that is that it destroyed a lot of US manu typical sure. manufacturing US manufacturing base. zones. Yeah. Terrible, right? Well, actually, yeah. And so that is, that's what's happened. And now there's just been the backlash, right? You do that for long enough. And the, the Trump election was, I think, a, a wake up call to a lot of people that there was a both in the, it had sort of manifested in the electorate for the first time, this sort of antipathy, this backlash towards the loss of manufacturing. It was all directed at China because it's like you said, the great factory of the world at this point, right? It right. took the vast majority of all of those lost jobs went to China. And at this moment, China produces, actually it's probably accelerated. It's probably over a third of all manufactured goods or sure. at least are at least assembled in China. But the challenge is that maybe 10% of the global goods are consumed in China. So China has an industrial base that's at least three times, and it's actually much more, three times larger than it's the one it can consume by itself. Yeah. yeah. And so that is where there's huge problem, like you asked, is there a problem for China if we start to see more nationalism, protectionism, and stuff like that in the wake of COVID, and then in generally in the wake of the perceived skew, the perceived world of production, which has just been too skewed to China in the eyes of many Americans for too long. And the answer is yes, <laughs> it is a very bad thing, right? You you can't actually, China can't run on its own consumption base and everything going on with its population and its demographic decline is gonna make that even more impossible basically yeah. as time goes on. So, and it's not only the manufacturing base, but I was listening to one of your prior podcasts and it talked, you talked a lot about something which I was not aware of. And I think the mainstream media has maybe not been aware of is that they have an incredible real estate bubble at this point. And, uh, you know, as an investment, real estate is one of those things that depends on prices rising faster than inflation. And in order for that to happen, you have to have people at some point purchasing real estate. And now, so people, when they have their, when they have money, uh, what do they do with the money? Rather than just putting it in the mattress, they invest. What do they invest in? A lot of it is real estate. And so that market is way over leveraged at this point. So is there the possibility that there could be like a bubble bursting sometime in the near future, similar to the, to the real estate bubble that broke here back in 2008? Um, it seems like China's in a much worse condition. And just for reference, I remember looking back and seeing some pictures of huge apartment buildings in China and there's nobody in them. They're just built and they go on to the next building and build another one because obviously they're getting money for building these things, but at some point someone has to occupy them in order for the 
for the uh, for the investment to pay off. So um, could that cause a collapse at this point, do you think? And if so, what uh, what would be the ramifications to the to the not only the leadership in China, but again, the worldwide reverberations? Yeah, I think the Chinese property bubble is one of the greater and more immediate threats to sort of take out the whole the whole system. Basically, mm -hmm. there's often there's many things that I keep in mind about what might be the sort of domino that perhaps leads things to well collapse basically. And increasingly the, the property market is just one of the key ones everybody should really be looking at because there is a massive bubble there that's just it could easily be the largest bubble in human history, period. Just the scale of what's gone on and the specific way in which real estate is so enmeshed in the investment strategy of people around China. It's a consumption good as well. It's necessary for people in China to find spouses. It is seen as it's also the one of the only investment goods that are available in China. So here we have financial assets and you can buy this, you can buy that, you can go on the stock market, you can put these in funds and all this. In China, there's far fewer investment options mm -hmm. and you're basically stuck with just real estate. So everyone is plowing their money into real estate. They have an enormous percentage of urban wealth is just entirely in real estate. And there's been a game of chicken going on between basically the Chinese population and the Chinese government about, are you going to ever allow prices to fall, right? This is basically what they were doing. Like, all right, are you going to ever slow this down, stop this, try and put an end to it? Because mm -hmm. it's so enmeshed. And people always need to remember that finance and real estate are tied together at the hip. Yeah. And there's deep ancient reasons for this. And But more immediately and modernly, collateral. The, the most the, the cloud that makes a bank feel the most secure is land and property. Yeah. Whether those things have any value or not, that's kind of just the way it works. It's what makes their, their equations and their ratios and everything fit best. And so you get all sorts of financial activity rooted in the supposed value of real estate. And this, well, it, like you said, it had problems for the U.S. subprime market. But in China, it's far, far, far larger and more disturbed the the centrality of real estate it's enmeshed in every local government it's enmeshed in the gdp uh, efforts basically the gdp quotas that the, the central government sets it just cascades through every level of society and so it is extremely dangerous it's over a 50 trillion dollar bubble wow. and it can't go on forever but there is a lot of capacity in the chinese state to reconfigure and rearrange capital and debt structures, right? So you can take these guys, you sell, you, China has total control over ultimately the assets and liabilities of various sure. companies. And it's rearranged industries routinely. And again, you're kind of rearranging the deck chairs on, on the Titanic at some point, like the, this, the, the bill does come due, yeah. but yeah. So I would, I would, everyone should definitely keep it in mind. And it easily could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. So what about uh, there's other places China can put its money? I mean, over the if you add China along with Hong Kong, for some reason, they still separate the two in some of these financial reports. But if you add the debt that they own of, of U.S. debt, it ends up being about uh, just shy of one point three trillion dollars. This is as of last October, which is just a hair less than Japan is for the U.S. So right now, basically, China owns one point three trillion dollars of U.S. debt and uh there's a total U.S. debt of about, of about $28.4 trillion. So that makes China about a 5% owner. Um, would they be wanting to perhaps move some of, their, some of their money into more U.S. debt? And what would be the ramifications if China does have a 
collapse of its real estate market, which would then cascade into all different parts of their economy, what would be the uh, what would be the result of of all the debt that they're holding? Would they just try to sell it to get cash and and this and could trash the U.S. Uh, dollar value or something like that? I mean, I have all these worst case scenarios built up in my mind, so I'm right. kind of looking to you to to provide some answers on that. Sure. So I think that. In the mid 2010s, around then, people were getting very worried about the Chinese control of U.S. debt. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, the U.S. has pumped, has issued so much debt that that's actually decreased, which is a, yeah. I guess, a good, bad consequence or whatever of that. So silver general, lining. Yeah. yeah, silver yeah. lining. But in general, I think it's good to keep in mind why a country like China held holds the U.S. debt in in general. It's not there as a weird sort of lever in the case of a worst case conflict between the two countries. What it is, it's just a natural consequence of the development strategy that China followed and that Japan actually uh, pioneered. Mm -hmm. So the, the way it works is that China basically did something called export-oriented industrialization, where it industrialized the country, doing, like I said, where it became a production node, where it produced all these goods that were sold to places like the US, because the, when you're incredibly undeveloped, you have literally nobody to sell to in your own country. So you actually need that even more at early, earlier stages of development. And the one of the consequences of this is that if you're selling all these goods to the United States, what that would naturally do is actually increase the value of your currency because part of the way that a currency's value is derived is that it's the demand for that currency. And if the US right. is buying all sorts of stuff from China, it would increase the, the demand for the, for the UN. And then that would make it harder to sell those goods. So Japan actually started this where when it was industrialized in 60s, 70s, 80s, all that, it was buying up US debt and it was buying up US dollars to basically stabilize its own currency and to take some of the US demand off the market for those goods. And it gets pretty naughty and complicated the way this all shakes out. But in general, what is going on is that China, and actually the reason Japan now has more debt than the United States is because it's doing the exact same thing for the yen. And it's not something that can really be weaponized without hurting you, right? right, right. That's, and so that's why it was always scary to Americans because it makes us it made us feel like they were our creditor and that they were going to like, you know, Call come their loan. shake yeah. us down. Yeah, yeah shake yeah. us down, right? Break our knees, but, yeah. Yeah, but it doesn't quite work like that. Yeah. It just, it, the way China needs, it needs its export exports. It's a key pillar of the Chinese economy. It brings in hard currency. It brings in a lot of things that the country really needs, right? It runs... Roughly speaking, a lot of the growth in the last few years in China has come from heavy industry, infrastructure development, that sort of thing, then the construction, real estate, property sector, and then exports. So that's one of the three pillars, and okay. they need it. <laughs> so they're not, it's a it's a dark day. If you have a property bubble bursting, and then you decide to wreck your own exports by messing with your currency, you're suddenly, you're you're on the way, to, you're on the way down. You're back to the chaos that's cycle, basically, then, you know. Yeah. So let's talk about their military. Um, geographically speaking, and I think you alluded to this earlier, that, that China is, in some sense, it's like Russia. It's surrounded by many other countries that aren't necessarily looking out for China's best interest, to put it lightly. And so I'm sure that the military is consumed with, you know, shoring up its borders and, and with these nations. But there's been a lot of talk lately about its naval buildup in the South China Sea. And so what's the game plan there? And should the U.S. be concerned about this? Yeah, so the South China Sea buildup actually goes back all the way to the 90s, where they were sort of taking islands from Vietnam. And it's really been going on a very long time. And it really expanded in 2009 when 
China pulled out of out of no out of its magic hat. It pulled a nine dash line that the old Republic of China, which had zero authority almost anywhere in China most of the time, where basically they had a map that showed nine dashes on the South China Sea, claiming all of that for China, mm. which also never existed in Chinese history. But none of that really matters. They were they like this map. And they claim the whole South China Sea. They took their and, own sharpie and drew it on the map, I guess, right? Yeah, it's it a big sharpie, and they're like, "Well, I think we got we own all this." Um, <laughs> but the the main reason, not a a very a major reason why China wants the South China Sea is because of kind of what you alluded to is mass military vulnerabilities, right? Mm -hmm. This is one of the main things that well instigates periods of chaos in Chinese history. Typically, it would be proto-Russian barbarian states that would come rolling in. Mm -hmm. But increasingly after, in the last thousand years, it has been seaborne states, starting with, well, you know, the Japanese were a pretty brutal, right. they were probably the best at this. And then also Dutch, British, Portuguese, all this kind of stuff. The waves that have been lapping at the Chinese coastline have been pretty dangerous for the Chinese state for many, many sure. centuries now. Yeah. And what China has is a coastline that is hemmed in on all sides by basically island nations, hostile nations, large industrialized allies of the United States, right? Japan, you have Taiwan, you have renegade provinces, you have South Korea. Yeah. yeah. And we also have to remember the United States has had stationed troops right all around China for ever, basically, as long as yeah. the People's Republic has existed, right? We also yeah. invaded Vietnam right next to China. So the perception of Chinese vulnerability is uh, deeply ingrained. And I'd also like to say, like a key principle I sometimes throw out about Chinese history is that in Chinese history, the barbarians are always at the gates, right? Mm -hmm. That is the way it's it's seen in China, 100%. And so that's a good thing to keep in mind. And for China, what it is trying to do with its naval buildup, among many other things, I mean, obviously it has grand ambitions to rule the seas and compete with the United States all around the world and all this, and you really need a navy to do that. Because as we were mentioning, there's all this global trade, right? And 90% right. of trade happens at sea because you get economies of scale there you cannot get over land and that's right. why china's belt and road initiative has kind of morphed into a generalized investment initiative because you can't actually run railways through kazakhstan and expect to actually make any money off of it uh, <laughs> in, in comparison right? right and so that the the quality of the chinese naval buildup is probably what is concerned most concerning to u.s military planners and u.s military generals basically everyone in asia as well because that is the the way that things get really dark. Yeah. But what I would always encourage people to keep in mind is that a military, a country's military capacity is always related to like, it's related to its needs, right? So the United States I, is a great example. The United States has basically me Mexico and Canada next to it. It's the only people, countries that really borders. And precisely what, zero, 1% of the US military is concerned with Canada or Mexico. Yeah. So there's very little high defensive security costs for the United States. That's part of one of the reasons why I can just have a global expeditionary military going all around the world, right? right. Invading landlocked Central Asian countries for decades, which is absurd, has never been done. It, again, it's a stupid idea, but right. bizarrely impressive in its own weird way. China is very, very, very different. And like you said, it's similar to Russia, where you have just so many countries that China has problems with and that are not only enemies, but long historic ancient enemies. The last war that China fought was in the late 1970s, and it was against Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And Vietnam was colonized for about a thousand years in four different rounds by China. And the depth of the Vietnamese antipathy towards China would stun an American, right? Oh. They 
Americans are <laughs> barely remembered in the, the, the grand scheme of Vietnamese history, as, as terrible as that sounds. It's like we remember the Vietnamese, Vietnam War. They think, oh, we were defending ourselves against China for thousands of years. And we established our identity. And then some weird Americans came. We don't quite understand why. And then we're back to going to war with China. And wow, now the Americans yeah. are our friends. Like, you just got to we got to keep in, in mind the, the, the great depth of this. And unfortunately, during the Cold War, we were so preoccupied with ideology, with communism versus this. We thought Vietnam and China, just because they were both communists, would make them allies. It's like, no, nationalism right. is still the big dog in the room, right? Mm -hmm. That's something everyone should always keep in mind. And as things start to, like I said, as things start to unravel in various ways with this global system, we're going to see that what's going to come to the fore are going to be nations, uh, nations, well, nations, nation states, states without nations, nations without states, all that kind of stuff, and all the conflicts over that. So that's where things go. And just tie it back together to the South China Sea, the this is basically what the U.S. is trying to is trying to most watch and what China most wants to have is basically freedom to operate and maneuver in its littoral waters and then also farther out into basically blue ocean. And the problem for for China is basically Korea and Japan and the, the Ryukyu Islands and Taiwan and the Philippines and all of these places that are hemming it in and yeah. preventing it from getting everything. And specifically the South China Sea was trying to push it closer to the, the, the Strait of Malacca where all of its energy resources flow through and which China in any conflict over any nation, if China loses its access to energy, it everything stops. Everything collapses. The, the, yeah. Everything yeah. collapses. I mean, the, the tanks don't have fuel. The planes fall out of the sky. There's no electricity. I mean, if you don't have energy, you're no longer a modern industrialized nation, period. It doesn't matter what else you've built. And so that's, I mean, for people who are listening, that's a, a good reason. I mean, I, I, again, like I don't, I didn't support any of the wars in, in the Middle East, but that's a good reason why there was such chaos and fear and paranoia in the, in the American government when they envisioned the energy supplies of the world being so threatened and they remember the 1970s and around 2005 the US was at the height of its oil dependence and all this stuff was it, it induces a lot of fear and paranoia so sure. that's part of the reason you try and conquer an entire sea and antagonize every country there even though many of them are ready and willing to gang up and line up against you because it's right you're mm -hmm. You know, you're attacking them. It's it's a bit of insurance on their part then. Well, you mentioned a couple of things I want to jump off on. And and uh, I'll start with Taiwan. You mentioned Taiwan as, as being part of the countries that have been in. But really, China has always considered Taiwan a part of its own territory, um, kind of, uh, from what I understand. And it seems that it would be, I don't know, what is, what is the story between China and, and Taiwan these days? I mean, there, there's talk about China coming in and wanting to establish itself in Taiwan. It could do it militarily, I suppose. It could do it as part of a um, sort of a, a, covert, a covert sort of operation, uh, perhaps using propaganda or something. But it, to me, this seems to be very dangerous because China, because uh, Taiwan has a lot of the uh, manufacturing capabilities for um, perhaps most predominantly are semiconductors, uh, TSMC, which is the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. Um, if that thing ever goes offline, uh, you know, it, it, uh, I just clipped an article out of The Guardian here. It said, uh, it said, it's hard to overstate the importance of the Taiwanese semiconductor maker to the world's economy. TSMC dominates production of the, of the world's most sophisticated semiconductors and counts Apple and Qualcomm among its biggest customers. It is a global hegemony that China envies. So, how does China 
deal with Taiwan at this point. They want Taiwan, but it's kind of the goose that laid the golden egg, too. I mean, how do they get it without actually killing the goose, so to speak? Yeah, it's kind of hard to see how that could happen. Most likely, it really can't. You can't actually do an amphibious invasion of a large industrialized island nation without breaking some eggs along the way, right? Yeah. You're not going to have yeah. access to all those grand facilities you were so excited about. In the meantime, it would really totally destroy most of the digital world that we're relying on, right? The right. rate of innovation in consumer electronics and all that that we expect with the new headphones, new new cameras, new chips, new everything, and all of our phones, all of our computers, that would all grind to a halt. So it's pretty hard to imagine how that would happen. And China's problem is that it missed its chance, really, to, for Taiwan to happen the way it wanted, right? Hmm. So this is a very old story. So Taiwan actually was not a part of China's history for most of it. It's really in the last 500 years. It wasn't even a part of the Song Dynasty, which is shocking, but that's true. And it really actually came into Chinese history about... <laughs> this same issue or basically during the 1600s this was the transition between the ming and the qing dynasties and by transition i mean brutal violent civil war right mm -hmm. that's what that really means and what happened is that the losing ming dynasty basically and, and some merchant fleets and stuff they were allied with they fled to taiwan and that was the exact same pattern we had in the 1940s when the nationalists lost the war for the mainland and fled to taiwan Back then, in the 1600s, they took a few decades and they built some ships and they eventually conquered it, right? <laughs> You're just an island and we're obsessed right. with conquering it. It worked out. That didn't happen because the U.S. Navy prevented it, right? right. There is, they couldn't do it. They simply could not breach that relatively only 100 miles or so for the, of the Taiwan Strait. And that's obviously that really galled China. I mean, you can see Mao was launching rockets and missiles and he really, really, really wanted Taiwan, but it couldn't make it happen. And then when the U.S., Basically, there was this reproachment in the 70s with China and the U.S. What happened is that the U.S. originally had a mutual, basically a defense treaty with Taiwan. This was an official one. And to get China on board with all this anti-Soviet Union stuff the U.S. was about, we basically made that legal defense agreement unofficial. Right. Mm -hmm. That's basically what happened. And it became ambiguous, but it was pretty obvious that it wasn't going to happen. So this would be similar to if the U.S. had a, managed to have it, you know, make up kiss and make up with North Korea, but the cost would be to like give North Korea, South Korea, right? That mm -hmm. wasn't going to happen. It was right. the same thing with, with Taiwan. And now there's all sorts of communiques and assurances and all this stuff that go around with it. Basically you have a de, a de facto alliance treaty with the U S and Taiwan. And that's kind of obvious. And China has known that. And what's happened recently is as the centrality of Taiwan has become obvious to the rest of the world, particularly because of semiconductors, you're starting to see official changes in the region. So Japan recently said, basically, they're going to fight for Taiwan if, mm. if push comes to shove. And so that is a, a really big deal. And for Japan, it's kind of more obvious. It's less about how much they love Taiwan and more about how Their Taiwan economy, is kind yeah. of like a... Yeah, and yeah. also Taiwan is the bottom of a long island chain that extends through mm -hmm. the home islands, right? There's the Ryukyu Islands, and basically Taiwan is the very end piece of that, right? So yeah. that's a great way to let... China, which claims those islands to just take all of those too, right? So Japan would much rather fight in Taiwan. And Taiwan was actually the first part of China that Japan colonized. So there's much more of a connection there than the people realize. But that is the way things sit. So the other sort of real challenge for China has been Hong Kong, where Hong Kong mm -hmm. was supposed to be the vision of how Taiwanese integration might happen in the future, right? If you go back to the 1990s, oh, we're going to have two countries, one system, all this stuff was created to make it seem like we could have a a grand Chinese fold come together in the 21st century. 
to some degree, at least to put out the propaganda, that was a possibility. Well, now what's happening in Hong Kong has basically re- destroyed any possibility right. of having any sort of actual peaceful, real thing happen on the Chinese, I mean, on the Taiwanese, from the Taiwanese side. And then as for any sort of covert operation, it's just really not possible anymore. The, the mm-hmm. There's too much. I mean, Ty- Taiwan was actually a dictatorship through the 1970s, but as it developed democracy, you basically had a party that became rapidly anti-China. And then as things have moved, you're almost getting a bipartisan keep China at a distance policy in the Taiwanese electorate. So it'd be very hard. I mean, they try, China has tried very hard <laughs> to get control over some of this, these electoral processes, but they've always been messy, like in every any other country, right? Try and take control of Mexico. The United States trying to take control of Mexico's, you know, polit- mm-hmm. politics. That's very hard, right? right. And right. and all around the Cold War, you just saw the U.S. failing to deal with every <laughs> random country's internal politics, and it just led to all these problems. And we did pretty dubious coups and all that kind of stuff. But it's very similar for China and Taiwan. It's just very unlikely would ever be able to create some party that could it could basically use as a, you know, it's beachhead to try and push unification. It was trying all this stuff. It just it's that ship has sailed. Yeah, yeah. Well, that gives me some comfort because um, I, I was considered the fact that you know we are such vulnerable. We're, we're so vulnerable to you know computer chips uh, being manufactured in a, a complete in in an un, uninterruptible supply of computer chips, and we've seen what this short interruption in supply how much it has affected our uh, our industries here, particularly our automobile industry. I have a friend that works uh, for Ford on the assembly line, and he says, you know, they had to send them home for like a month at a time because they they have everything except the computer chips they need to put the cars together. So that puts my mind at a little bit of ease, um, but we still are subject to vulnerabilities there in Taiwan. But at least now I know that China's not going to like land a bunch of boats in there and start taking over things and, and kill the goose that laid the golden egg. Well, I will say... There's more of a potential for a war between Taiwan and China now and in the coming near future than there is than there has been for a long time. And the problem is just because as things are destabilizing in China, mm-hmm. the the party is losing its credibility and its authority, right? And it needs it's run on competence, right? There's no elections, there's nothing like that in China for the political system. And the what the Chinese Communist Party is run on is results. Look at the massive cities, mm-hmm. look at our place in the world, look at our military, look at this, look at the reju- great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Well, as growth starts to fade, and it's fading, right? The everyone yeah. You can look at there's just growth numbers, and they're also still inflated. They're still very dubious. But nonetheless, even China can't prevent the downward trend. And mm. that is, again, one of those things that causes all those tensions I've brought up in China to become even more of a problem. And the Communist Party is running around looking for something it can, you know, Hang its hat on. Drop, yeah. Hang its hat on, exactly. Yeah. And public health being the, ba- the, gra- the greatest nation to fight COVID, right? Well, that worked a year ago. And now it's like, what do you guys still have a zero lockdown? You're locking down random cities one after the other. You're, the Olympics look like they're going to be a disaster. All that is, is going on. And this is also when a sort of desperate Chinese state could very easily think that the Basically, the benefits, the internal stability benefits, the propaganda benefits, all of that of a war over Taiwan, you know, might might outweigh all the problems. And it just depends on how bad things get, right? Mm. If China loses control of its of its energy system, if it if it its manufacturing system starts to crumble for all sorts of reasons, if if any of this stuff happens, then war could be the best, the worst, the best of a bunch of bad of options. Bad and that's options, un- yeah. And that's unfortunately where China is trending. It's going to be a, a, a place of pick your poison. 
This yeah. is not a like grand rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. This is pick your poison. What are you going to allow to happen? Will there be famine here? Will there be energy shortages there? Will there be wars here? Will there be? I mean, this is this is what it's going to look like when things. Uh, this is what come what happens when China comes apart, right? And so people shouldn't discount the problem of a the potential for a war over Taiwan. They really shouldn't. But again, making this work is a just as hard, right? Getting actually doing that amphibious invasion and having it successfully happen. If the U.S. gets involved, if Japan gets involved. Part of what China was trying to do is try to make this seem like a, a fait accompli. Like, oh, mm -hmm. China is so large, it's so powerful, it's just inevitable that Taiwan will join it, will rejoin it, right? right. And it also wanted its military to, to present that same image. Oh God, Taiwan could just never defeat the large, impressive Chinese Navy and military, right? But again, just trying to take Taiwan could easily wreck a third of the Chinese military. And the Chinese military is designed to take Taiwan. That is basically, and obviously defend China in all sorts of various ways, but sure. really since the 90s, the South China Sea, all this stuff. Well, if China owns all the way to almost Singapore, how could it not also have Taiwan? All this stuff was supposed to make this just seem inevitable. And unfortunately for China, it was pushing this very triumphalist narrative without that triumph, right? If you have things start to crumble or collapse, you don't get that natural, that fait accompli. And so that's a real problem for it. It's a, it's hard to, again, it's, you could, I wouldn't discount this stuff because Things get very dicey in China, and countries don't make the best decisions under yeah. duress. That's true. So now you scared me all over again. But this this policy <laughs> you talked about earlier that the United States started back in 1945, a policy of trying to stabilize the world. Um, you would think then that forward-thinking individuals here in the U.S., politicians as much as possible, would um, would not pick on China so much and actually try to make sure that China has some modicum of survival and some modicum of success because it sounds to me like what you're saying there is that if things start to come apart, it's going to unravel and it's going to bring the whole world with it. Um, yet at the same time, I mean, I see China being used as a punching bag by U.S. politicians, and I, I don't quite understand that, um, that mentality if things are as vulnerable as you say they are. Well, you nailed it. So what if you look at the 1990s, 1980s, when China was still developing, and if you look at someone like like Joe Biden, who has been in the Senate and he was part of foreign affairs committees for so long, people who have been around long enough in, in the sort of the government sector, they look at China and they remember China in the 90s. They mm -hmm. remember how what the U.S. was trying to do was actually, yeah, give it, even though it's communist and God, it did Tiananmen. You know, we don't want this whole place to crumble and it just be hundreds of millions of people in poverty and fighting and starving. So- there is that component to it. And mm -hmm. the problem is that like with COVID messaging, the US government is terrible at doing a lot of foreign policy messaging. And mm -hmm. it never really communicated what China was like. And then it miscalculated how quickly China would develop, how its development would impact the US manufacturing sector, impact the US sense of self, the, the overall self-confidence of, of the US electorate and all of that. And it basically, we had a kind of radical shift from the US government. And again, if you look at someone like Biden, you'll be like, you could find old things where he's like, China's going to eat our lunch. No way, blah, 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 blah. But they remember, right? They remember how close China was at many times to you know, falling off, right? For the train to fall off the, the tracks. Yeah. yeah, just to derail. And what's happened as China, particularly after 2008, it started that triumphalist narrative that I'm talking about where it weathered the Great Recession, global sort of global recession, better than the United States, 
by juicing its economy. And obviously that has problems later on, but in the short term, it really felt like it was ascendant. And the world started to see China as ascendant increasingly around that time. And China started to have its grand companies spread all around the world and buy American assets and do all this stuff. And it was, it, it fed this narrative. And what happened is that the old China was forgotten, right? The, the China that can crumble into pieces and the problems that are associated with that was forgotten. But the truth is we can't really go back to that. The U.S. has a bipartisan consensus, an animus against China at this point. Yeah. And I'm not here to say we should think about it any other way. I'm here mostly to just give context and to try and tell us, show us where things might be going, how to make that possibly better. But that's just the lay of the land at this point. The Democrats, the Republicans are like almost competing on who could be more antagonistic yeah. Yeah. against China. And also after Trump, the left in particular is very unwilling to look weak on China. That that has just become it's, it's basically a creed on the right. That you know, strength, power, all that kind of stuff for to show, especially military strength. And the idea of a Chinese military threat is driving all sorts of changes, particularly in the United States military. But in general, also, the US tends to flip out and get scared of other countries or fearful of what they might become when they hit about two thirds, 75% of US GDP. That's what mm -hmm. happens with the Soviet Union, with Japan in the 80s, and all this. And the whole country starts to reorient around stopping that, right? And this is just a basic. This is basically what the U.S. deep strategy is as a country. You want to be top dog and you sort of help all these other countries develop so it's not like global chaos everywhere, but you don't let any country become mm -hmm. a regional power yeah. and then be try and become a global power that could in particular float a navy or can, or uh, compete with you in, in North America or around the world. So that's why the U.S. sticks its finger into Europe when, you know, in World War One, looks like Germany's going to win and they just put your thumb on the scale and say, no, nah, not quite. Yeah. You come in again at the end of World War II, you say, no, Japan tries to take over all of Asia. You're like, no, Soviet Union tries to conquer Asia again, not going to happen. Right. That's that's what happens, right? And so China is has reached that point already. So it's kind of baked in, right? There's no hmm. there's no way you're going to have a United States that is going to be- Subservient, really, in a not, sense. Or subservient or even willing to compromise in a lot yeah. of ways. It's just unwilling at this point. It's too, it, it, the fear is too great. Whether, you know, personally, I think China is, like I've been saying, sort of going to collapse is going to be kind of, kind of dark and bloody. But in the meantime, it's just too powerful for the U.S. comfort, right? And you don't want to hear, China, oh, we're not worried. We're not trying to be number one. We just want common prosperity and we want peace. It's like, not, not going to buy that anymore, right? <laughs> Especially because people yeah. remember, like, the 1990s, oh, we thought China was so weak. It was just making our little toys, our little plastic toys and stuff. Now it's making aircraft carriers, right? Yeah. And people are just like, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not going to. Yeah, fool me once, right? Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on, shame on me. Well, all of our meds—not all of our meds, but a lot of our meds—are manufactured there too, right? So if they if things get cut off in China, that's another thing that kind of scares me. I, I know a lot of meds are, are also manufactured in India, but China has a large number of uh, of our medicines are manufactured there, and um, immediately people that depend on these medicines are going to be somewhat out in the cold i guess we'd have to find other suppliers for it around the world but uh it's gonna it's gonna ding things pretty terribly so yeah it it, it i can see why politicians want to get some mileage off of poking a finger in china's eye so to speak but um boy it, it, it's kind of like sticking a putting a stick in a hornet's nest in a sense you really don't want those hornets to come out after you yeah it's tough the real challenge beyond China, sort of more broadly, is just that this globalized manufacturing system, the system of production nodes, consumption nodes, and all of this, it's all kind of under threat. It's not just a COVID thing. COVID sort of exposed that these long, vulnerable supply chains aren't resilient. They're not redundant. You don't have as much national control 
over things. And you're seeing pushes in Europe and the United States and China to have as many things that are seen as key to national security to basically be, sure. if not in, in the United States, like for the United States, for example, it's in the United States or at least in North America, right? That's fine. It's in Mexico, even though obviously there's a whole NAFTA problem. People want the jobs here. In general, though, much prefer Mexico to China, right? No. And no. this is just going to be something we're going to deal with for years. The, the rearranging of all these global supply chains, the global value chains, it's going to cause mass disruptions. And what's happening is that the U.S. military has always had things that need to be built in the United States, right? You can't build the F-35 in China. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, but what's happening is the, with, in the from the U.S. side, the what is considered national security is just expanding, right? So it, yeah. it includes API, so those active pharmaceutical ingredients that are almost entirely made in China and India, and, and all of these different things. Where companies, what happened is basically in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, the cost benefits for companies to globalize production was just insane. Right. You basically could, what it comes to down, but what basically what it comes down to at its root is global labor and tax arbitrage. That's what this really meant. This is what globalization from a corporate perspective meant. It meant let's build every single little part everywhere in the world, wherever it, we can make it cheapest, right? Every every single little part. You're optimizing sure. every single little part. Then you have super cheap transportation costs, and then you have super cheap assembly in China, and you just do all that, and you get, well, you basically get decades of deflationary manufacturing, right, costs, yeah. right? We basically have manufacturing just it goes down and down and down and down, and that's, that's a big reason that we had that really big deflationary period. But that obviously has it has its limits, right? And China, a big reason why it was able to accumulate so much of this manufacturing capacity is because China said, all right, you want the cheapest place on earth? Beat this, right? We'll have basically no labor laws. We'll have no environmental yeah, laws. Yeah, we'll build yeah. the whole factory yourself. We'll do it, it, right? And so that gave it this huge uh, scale. Obviously, it had the later environmental damage and, and all of that, and it's trying to try and rectify that, deal with global warming, all that kind of stuff. But early on, this is how you get scale. And then you it starts to have sort of reinforcing feedback loops where, well, everything's already there. Why would I stop, right? Well, now I'm going to just put more of the production there. No, well, they have every you know supplier and sub-manufacturer that I would need. It's just right in that city. Well, why would I go to Nicaragua, right? So that's yeah. kind of what happened. But these companies are going to have to figure out what to do next because- the tensions, even if it doesn't lead to major conflict in the near term, the tensions between the, the U.S. and China are not going away. And companies are being caught in the middle, right? Yeah. They're being caught in a vice. You can remember the NBA. You can remember uh, Intel right now, Walmart right now, all these companies. Well, are you using forced labor in your supply chain? All these things are just terrible. Whether come it's, out now, yeah. Yeah, Taiwan, Hong Kong, yeah. Xinjiang, all these Chinese problems, problem points that have been there forever are now, as this, these tensions rise, they're all surfacing. And corporations are really being caught in the middle, but they're going to have to decide, well, when do we make the decision on costs and our, our profitability? And maybe we have to give up on the Chinese consumer market in some sense, which China had always been dangling out in front of them like, oh, one day you'll have a billion consumers. That's How right. could you leave? Yeah. But that's also not going to pan out. So the co corporates have major changes to major considerations to keep in mind as, as these changes kind of unfold and just like countries do, really. Okay. And we're getting toward the end of our time here, but just real briefly, uh, I noticed that China has been uh, becoming more influential in Africa. There is 53 nations in Africa, I believe, and China is in most of them in some regard or another. What's their What's their end game there? Well, the end game is actually extremely simple. So you could pull up a map of major Chinese investments in Africa, and it is basically the most neo-colonial thing you can imagine. You basically have ports 
connected with rail lines to major natural resource sites. <laughs> and it's yeah. just like that like, across all the major coastal Chinese, uh, coastal African nations that China has invested in. And it's just there for resources, right? So China, yeah. people are always worried about China and how so many global supply chains and manufacturing devices and different appliances and stuff are all built in China. But the whole supply chain is all around the world. And China is trying to, like the United States, it's also trying to get control of these supply chains that it is threatened by. And so all of the the more upstream goods that you'll get, whether it's cobalt in Congo or any other material, you they're trying to get as much control over these supply chains as the United States, because they actually have perceived for a very long time how vulnerable they are. We're only just starting to realize that the world is changing and globalization is on its way out. And now we're going to have to figure out what comes next. And there's going to be mad chaos along the way. China's kind of already known that they've they've looked at their history. They've seen where things go and they're they're trying to get ahead of the curve. Yeah. Well, they've been in China for quite some time already, which was kind of surprising to me. But I think the United States has, has uh, insofar as its energy reserves are concerned, uh, have been in mainly, as you mentioned earlier, uh, pushing through the Middle East to try to secure their supply lines there. Um, this is very interesting stuff, but I think we're running up at the end of our uh, time here. Um, just a question for you is where can people go to get more information if they're interested in what you have to say? You have a very extensive website, a lot of podcasts, a lot of writing on it, but you're also coming out with a book soon. So where can people go to get more information on that? Yeah, sure. So people should check out the, the website, jasonsheftel.com. There's podcasts there. I also have a, a YouTube channel where I'm just doing uh, live streams right now where I'll basically mouth off about different topics and people who are really like me can check that out. There's that. There's uh, a really big podcast episode going to come out soon. You should check that out. I'll also have something sort of interesting for people. It's going to be a short course that's going to try to explain some of the sort of geographic principles of development and economics and national development, all that kind of stuff that sort of gives people the, teaches people to fish rather than sort of fishing for them and telling them all these right. answers. I've been trying to put that together for people. So okay. check that out. There's also Twitter. I'm on there, at Jason Scheftel. And those are probably the main ones. Yeah, YouTube, Twitter, okay. podcast, website. Just to make sure people know where to go to, your your last name has an interesting spelling. It's <laughs> S-Z-E-F-T-E-L, correct? That's right. Okay, it's Jason Sheftel.com. Yeah, all one word, Jason Sheftel. All right, That's good. That's it. We've been talking with Jason Sheffield, a political and economic writer and podcaster who has written extensively on China. His upcoming book, China Unraveled, chronicles the story of China's cycles of tyranny and chaos. Or should I say order and chaos? Uh, Jason, thanks again for stopping by today. No problem. It's a lot of fun. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Ray Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week. 